This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 70 of Inside COVID-19. In this episode, some smart advice on how eating right can blunt the coronavirus sting. And that comes from Discovery's chief dietitian. A South African healthcare hero, Vitz Professor Guy Richards, shares his own COVID-19 infection journey and explains why his team applied dexamethasone well before the life-saving drug became popular. Eskom's pension fund has declared a 100 million rand bonus to help its 33,000 members overcome the financial strain of the pandemic. And we'll have the inside story for you of Kodak's crazy share price surge after the White House threw $765 million at the old photography icon to get it to pivot into making chemicals to help fight the pandemic. And this episode closes with the show of support that's growing for an unusual protest action by the owner of a safari company that's based near the Kruger National Park. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. In today's COVID-19 headlines, some good news out of Russia. Moscow's Gamaleya Institute for Epidemiology and Microbiology has registered the world's first COVID-19 vaccine. It accelerated the trial time by employing military testing and accelerated clinical evaluations. Russia hopes to use the vaccine in a massive immunization program and to sell it globally under the brand name Sputnik 5. That was the world's first satellite, which the Russians launched into orbit, beating the Americans. Russian President Vladimir Putin said he hopes the vaccine will soon be released adding one of his daughters had already received it. Russia has registered the fourth most coronavirus infections on Earth at 900,000, with deaths breaking above 15,000 yesterday. South Africa's new infection curve continues to decline, with a modest 3,739 new cases reported on Sunday. That's down to a quarter of those registered at the peak On July the 24th, active cases are also on the decline. Sunday's figure of just under 136,000 is 20% below the highest level. Mortalities are also falling with Sunday's 213, around half the recent high and well down on the record 572 reported on July the 22nd. Total South African deaths are now at just over 10,600 suggesting that the official projections on which the government based its policies were exaggerated. The modelers started with a forecast of over 350,000 South African mortalities. Their most recent public update was 40,000, which still looks like being more than double the likely end result. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. Terry Harris is the head dietitian at Discovery Vitality. 
She joins us now at a very difficult time, I guess, for South Africans to try and protect themselves as much as possible against COVID-19. I was reading something over the weekend where a critic said part of the reason why people do get very sick from COVID-19 is actually self-inflicted. In other words, their diets are exposing them to the worst of this virus. Is there any truth in that? Yeah, it's a really interesting point because we immediately want to say it's somebody's fault. It's my fault that I am in the state that I'm in. I'm referring specifically to one's weight. So a lot of attention has come out recently, uh, mainly from the UK, with the Prime Minister there, including ways to tackle obesity as one of their key strategies to prevent the complications of COVID. Where do you start in getting the right habits? If we hear now that being a healthy weight is important. We, in a way, tempted to start crash diets. How can we get a healthy weight now quickly? But you're right, it's a longer journey. It's where do we even start? And we start with the basic principles about what is healthy eating because it will help us on our journey, not just related to when you develop COVID and you're trying to avoid complications. It also helps with leading up to being exposed to the virus because nutrition plays a huge role in supporting your immune system. It also plays a massive role in your mental health. Okay, so help us out here. Someone who's obese and they are worried that they're going to get COVID at some point. What do they start doing now to protect themselves? The most important food group is fruits and vegetables. There's no doubt it's a long, well-known message. And there, the aspects to look out for is the variety. So the more colorful, the better. The second is a food group which we tend to not experiment with or enjoy often is our beans, lentils, chickpeas. They fall into the category called legumes. They are so critically important because they contain fiber and that fiber supports the bacteria in your immune system. Another food group is obviously your whole grains. Much of what you've spoken about now is in boosting the immune system. Is that really your best defense against the virus? It's certainly not from the point that we're not going to be saying eating a healthy diet is more or as important as washing hands, social distancing. Absolutely not. Those are still critically important. Those are the most responsible avenues to take. It's just that eating a healthy diet doesn't take any more effort, yet it has so much benefit. Make those food choices when you're home. If you do develop the virus, then if you're a healthy way to start, you have a much higher chance of not having the complications. We hear a lot about comorbidities and how that has caused people to die from COVID-19. Is that also diet related or people with the comorbidities like diabetics? There's not a heck of a lot, it seems, that one can do once you are there. It's a really good question, and it is a good point that you've just made. It's what we call a non-modifiable risk factor. So non-modifiable, there's not much you can do to change it. Your age, your gender, and then those comorbidities. So we're not saying you're absolutely doomed, because we know that diet and a good diet can firstly prevent you from developing those conditions. But if you have already developed high blood pressure or diabetes, a good diet can really avoid those complications that those conditions themselves can cause, COVID aside. We know a poorly controlled diabetic, the complications are severe and really, really unpleasant, the same as hypertension. And those comorbidities layered on top of each other also affect your risk of COVID complications. What about the people now who are COVID-19 positive? Is there anything they can do on their diet or adjust their diet to help them to overcome it quicker? 
Again, it's just trying to support your body. And there you'll be dealing with quite acute symptoms like high temperatures, lack of appetite. So lots of fluids, healthy vegetables and fruits again, and just regular meals and rest, rest, rest. And just almost accept that your food will taste bland for quite some time. Don't resort to loading loads of flavorings to it. Terry, just as a checklist for us now, if during this period we want to reduce our chances of getting really ill from COVID-19, how can we adjust our diet now? What for breakfast? What for lunch? What for supper? So firstly, what you've said is important, breakfast, lunch and dinner. So the first aspect is really set a routine, set regular meals. It is great to have as much fiber in your breakfast as possible. Rather put the salad or the vegetables on the plate first, followed with a fistful of starch and then a fist or a palm full of protein. Just a point to make, there are some wonderful benefits that have come out of COVID. And it's the fact that we're home together. We're cooking more which is something we've always wanted to get people to do. And the fact that our lockdown has just caused that is a huge, huge benefit. People are cooking more. We're eating more as a family. So really keep those devices off and have at least one meal a day as a family when you're catching up. So a dinner time is a wonderful time to actually talk and just connect with people. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews. At least eight doctors in Gauteng have succumbed to COVID-19, which angry healthcare workers have blamed on shortages of good quality personal protective equipment. These doctors are among the 181 health workers who've died from the virus, according to figures revealed by Health Minister William Kize. The vulnerability of healthcare workers during the pandemic was highlighted when Professor Emeritus in Critical Care at the University of the Witwatersrand, Professor Guy Richards, announced that he is amongst those infected. Professor Richards is regarded as a hero in the medical community for the life-saving COVID-19 treatment regime that he and other Witz doctors applied long before it became popular elsewhere. He spoke to our colleague, Linda von Tilburg. I tested positive on the 20th. In July. Were your symptoms severe? Well, pretty bad. I mean, I had quite bad respiratory symptoms. I was quite short of breath. My saturation did go down at one stage, but in conjunction with some of the people I've trained, we managed myself quite well. <laughs> but I still managed with, carried on doing teaching webinars and, and all those sort of things during it, but um, fortunately didn't end up needing ventilation or anything. But so uh, I'm... Uh, in the recovery phase of COVID, I've now come back to work after it. Oh, you knew exactly what the right treatment was, is that it? Mm. Yeah. Sure, and Prof, are you okay now? Yeah, yeah, just, you know, you still feel a bit tired and, uh, and run down, but that's all improving. Do you think you contracted COVID-19 in the hospital? Yes, I think that obviously it's a, a hazard, an occupational hazard of being a doctor or a healthcare worker at the moment. and. The issue is that even if you're not directly in contact with patients, your colleagues are likely also to have the disease and transmission occurs quite easily in the hospital. So, yes, I uh, contracted it, but fortunately I'm on, well on the recovery phase at this stage. Did you ever need oxygen? Uh, no, I didn't need oxygen. My saturations remain sort of in the region of 90 to 91, which is down but not at a level that actually requires oxygen. And how do you feel now? 
I feel much better. It leaves you with a certain degree of debility. You feel run down and tired. And a lot of people have exhaustion, which is ongoing. I'm not too bad. I climbed a number of stairs today going up to the wards and um, and I managed them. But I'm going to step it up and increase the amount of exercise I do gradually. You've been praised for the fact that you started using dexamethasone quite early on in March already. Is that what you treated yourself with? Uh, yes, but now you have to be cautious about this. First of all, it wasn't me alone. It was certainly were protocols that we developed as an ICU group here in Gauteng. Myself and Mervyn Mur, we had previously treated certain uh, viral pneumonias, particularly chickenpox pneumonia, those that are severe that occur in adults with corticosteroids, and uh, had demonstrated a very good response at that stage. We also had treated various forms of pneumonia with corticosteroids if they were severe enough at that stage. So we were fairly confident that this disease, if you used the corticosteroids at the appropriate time, would also be of benefit. So now that's a very critical issue, is that if you take the corticosteroid whilst you still do not have the pneumonic phase, in other words, the pneumonia that is secondary to the COVID-19, then it often will make you worse. So the GPs who are prescribing it in the early phases of the disease is bad, and it actually leads to worse outcomes, which is why there was some controversy in terms of whether cortisone was a benefit or not. In patients who develop the pneumonia phase, the infiltrates in the lung, which are associated with low oxygen levels, then that is the phase at which you would start the corticosteroids. And coexistent with that low oxygen level is a high level of inflammation that we measure with a blood test called the C-reactive protein, which shows the extent of the inflammation in the lungs. So that combination, pneumonia and high C-reactive protein, is the situation in which corticosteroids are going to be of benefit. And I did take them, but only when my oxygen levels dropped and my C-reactive protein had elevated significantly as well. And then I started the corticosteroids at that stage. The fact that you contracted COVID-19 just shows you how at risk healthcare workers are. Of course, yes. There are hundreds of healthcare workers who have contracted this disease. In our hospital alone, there are hundreds who have contracted the disease. Fortunately, we have not lost any, but there have been recently eight doctors or so who died in one of the hospitals north of, of us. And who knows, ultimately, in total, the number of healthcare workers who have, who have demised as a consequence of this disease. We hope you, you get better soon. If we look at mm. critical care in South Africa at the moment, is the health system coping? Yes, it is actually doing remarkably well. Obviously, in Gauteng, we're somewhat spoiled. Uh, we're the uh, smallest in geographical area, but the biggest in population. But along with that, we have more ICU beds, both in public and in private, than uh, the other uh, provinces uh, put together. So we had the facilities available to treat very ill patients. We're far better off than underserved provinces like the Eastern Cape and so on, where they have been completely overwhelmed in terms of the availability of uh, facilities. So yes, We've been managing, and it's a testament to the uh, doctors and nurses here 
that they have managed to do so and to treat the patients effectively in so doing. It seems that the peak is now behind us, especially in Gauteng. Is that what you see in your wards? Yes, so the numbers actually are declining at the moment. We still uh, have a huge number of patients, but the numbers definitely are, are going down, and that obviously makes it easier to manage as we go ahead. And obviously, if you've got less pressure on beds, it becomes easier to manage the patients. Of course, you, the numbers are declining, and that's it actually what we said would actually occur and what has happened all over the world. Of course, secondary uh, peaks are always possible, and I think that we're not going to be rid of this disease until such time as a vaccine, an effective vaccine is available. So at any point, we could get an increase again in the numbers that we're seeing in the hospital. It just depends upon how well people follow the social distancing protocols and wearing their masks and all the rest of it. The mostly forgotten photography icon Eastman Kodak jumped into the headlines this month after the Trump White House picked it out for special treatment in a plan to move production of chemicals that go into coronavirus drugs back to the U.S. from China. The now tiny U.S. company was incentivized through a $765 million government loan, news of which sent its share price from $2 to $33 before it eased back to its current $10, but still five times the level that it was at pre the loan announcement. Here's the inside story from our partners at the Wall Street Journal. Over the past few decades, the manufacturing of drug ingredients has largely moved overseas, mostly to China. But the pandemic disrupted that supply chain. Chinese drug factories closed and prices shot up. And the Trump administration has been looking for a way to move more production of the chemicals that go into drugs back to the U.S. So last week, the government signed a preliminary agreement with Kodak for $765 million loan to help the company manufacture these kinds of ingredients. My administration has reached a historic agreement with a great American company. You remember this company? It's called, from the good old camera age, the old days, to begin producing critical pharmaceutical ingredients. It's called Kodak. Why would Kodak want to get into pharmaceuticals? I mean, wouldn't you in the middle of a pandemic and someone's willing to give you money? <laughs> Jeff Rogo is our investing editor. It checks off two big boxes. One, you're helping the country and you're helping us get healthy. And two, you can make a lot of money doing it. This was an especially enticing opportunity for a company like Kodak. They'd spent decades as a major U.S. company, but with the decline of film photography, they'd fallen out hard times and declared bankruptcy in 2012. Ever since, the company's been looking for ways to reinvent itself. If you think about it, Kodak could be well-suited to make pharmaceuticals. It's been manufacturing chemicals for its film for decades. In the company's view, they already have the infrastructure in place to quickly start manufacturing drug chemicals. So when the federal government was looking for a company to make pharmaceuticals, they called up Kodak. They came to Kodak and said, can we make you a larger manufacturer that helps us make these chemicals that go into drugs in the United States. Obvious question someone might ask is, well, why don't you give this loan to a drug manufacturer? Like, this is stupid. Why are we giving this to Kodak? Right. 
the argument the government would make is the problem with a drug manufacturer is they're going to push their own drug. They're going to push the thing they want to come to market first. Kodak isn't making drugs. They have no FDA clinical trials. They have no skin in the game. That's the logic and thinking behind the deal. But while Kodak might be a fit for this kind of project, last week during the rollout of the deal, the company made some missteps. So about noon on Monday, two Rochester television stations, Rochester is Kodak's home, they received a press notification from the firm that an agreement between the United States and Kodak was being announced, but it was very short on details. Both entities wrote stories. Shortly after those stories were published, they received calls from Kodak saying, what are you doing? That news was not for publication. Hmm. And what did Kodak say about that accidental leak? They had a mea culpa. They said, we made a mistake. Sending a news alert to media about something coming the next day is standard practice. At the top of most of those things, though, if they don't want that information out, they call you ahead of time and say, this is embargoed. Meaning you can't release it until a certain time. Correct. In this case, they didn't call ahead of time and the notice didn't say embargo. They didn't tell the news stations until after the fact that that's what they meant. So news stations then immediately removed those stories from their websites. The issue is we live in a world where once the cat is out of the bag, the cat is out of the bag. One group that noticed the accidental release stock traders. Large high-frequency trading and other investment firms had seen it. The stock shot up and the amount of people trading the security was significantly higher than any day in the past couple months or years. The next day, more details about the agreement came out and the stock shot even higher. The Wall Street Journal's Rachel Levy broke the news on what this actual agreement was Tuesday morning. Then there's an official announcement from the company and the stock skyrockets. Eastman Kodak is now a small company with a big history, and it's getting even bigger today. Shares surging. And shares of Kodak, yes, Kodak tripling today. Better take a look at Kodak again. Oh, my, oh, my. Surging one more time. This is a- You're seeing it go from around $2 a share to as high as $60 a share. Wow, that's a huge increase. Yeah, it's a huge increase. You know, a doubling of a stock is crazy. Look, this thing went from 2 to 60 That's insane. The stock didn't stay quite that high. It bounced around and leveled out around 16 bucks, which is still a huge increase from before the news got out. That increase drew the interest of another colleague of ours, Teo Francis, who covers corporate finance. Why did you start looking into Kodak? What was it that piqued your interest? Well, anytime there's big news out there, one of the questions I think on many people's minds is who's benefiting? And anytime you see a stock price increase like that, there's a good bet that insiders are benefiting. And that's not to say there's anything untoward going on, right? Insiders hold stock. Investors want them to hold stock so they have skin in the game. Other times, like here, you see something that kind of makes you scratch your head and want to dig a little deeper. And in this case, what we saw were some option grants to the executive chairman of the company the day before this announcement was officially put out. Quite a story, isn't it? You can access that full podcast from our partners at the Wall Street Journal on Biz News Radio. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. 
Well, different people are addressing the COVID-19 crisis in various ways, but one of the more novel approaches has come from the Eskom Pension and Provident Fund, which today paid a bonus to its pensioners, and the Chief Executive and Principal Officer, Linda Mateza, joins us. It's unusual, Linda. I haven't heard of any other pension fund doing something similar, and it's a sizable bonus, 100 million rands, just over, that you are sending to your 33,000 pensioners. What motivated this? Thank you, Alec. I think it is unusual. I'm not aware of any other pension fund that has done it at this time. What motivated it really is a recognition that our pensioners are undergoing some financial hardship as a result of COVID because we're aware that each pensioner in a number of cases actually supports entire households on their pension. And with households being under strain and people having lost their jobs, I think we as EPPF were mindful that the level of pension that people live with is insufficient. So we began to wonder as some of the initiatives that we undertake as to how we could help them to alleviate some of this hardship. It's not usual that pension funds would declare extra amounts because you have a responsibility to increase pensions, I guess, every year. What is the condition of the fund like so that you could do this? So perhaps just to take a step back, the EPPF every year grants an annual increase to pensioners in line with its pension increase policy. And we evaluate the affordability of that increase according to the funding level of the pension fund and various other factors that our actuary has to take into account. As of last year, when we had to make a decision for the 2020 annual increase, we found that the fund could actually only afford a pension increase of 2%, which we realized is far below inflation. However, given that we have to sustain the fund into the future, even for future generations of pensioners, we actually couldn't afford to give more than that. And I think in part, this is what motivated the decision about the bonus. So part of what we do every year is the decision on the pension increase. However, this time around, recognizing that we had granted a low increase of 2% and the financial hardships that are being experienced right now, we thought it opportune for us to actually pay another bonus, a special bonus on a one-off basis just to assist with the current crisis to our members. What does it work out to for the members? In total, we have paid over 104 million rand per household. It works out to between three and a half thousand rand and five thousand rand. You say that the households support many people or numerous people. On average, Mm -hmm. how many would each pensioner support? It varies, but we've come across instances where it's up to four dependents. So in some cases, it's grandchildren, and in some cases, it's extended family or unemployed children, for that matter. Was there much lobbying by pensioners for this? There's been lobbying, Alec, for a higher increase. So ever since we implemented the 2% increase at the end of last year for 2020, a number of pensioners, understandably, were quite upset that 2% is below the cost of living, it's below inflation, and were agitating for us to pay a higher increase. 
We couldn't, however, pay a higher increase. And this is how we arrived at a decision of a bonus as opposed to an increase, because an increase increases the base of the pension level permanently. So if we were paying 100 and we increase it to 10, we are paying 110. And anything in subsequent years is on top of that 110. I wonder if other pension funds are looking at you or discussing similar approach. I think it would largely depend on whether first they're defined benefit pension funds like we are, and secondly, the status of their funding level. We are in a fortunate position that our funding level is above 100%. So what that means for the layperson is that if the pension fund were to close down today, we would be able to pay everyone to whom ESCOM owes a pension, both now and into the future. So 100% funding level means our assets are greater than our liabilities. Just to close off with, this has been described as a health crisis, but in fact it's also an economic crisis. What kind of feedback are you getting from members? And given that the average that they receive per month is 8,500 rand, these aren't people who are living off the fat of the land exactly. Well, we've received messages of gratitude. A couple of our pensioners actually called in to ask whether we'd made an error in the payment, which was really sweet. But we communicated to them that it's a one-off payment and it's to help them to meet the challenges of the time. It's not a solution because this economic crisis is deepening by the day. And we realize we can't resolve all the problems, but we can certainly help in some way. Inside COVID-19 from Biz News. The owner of a safari company which operates on the border of the Kruger National Park took to the road to protest against the lockdown of the tourism industry. The man who gives his name to Hilton Langley Safaris and Adventures says the closure of South Africa's borders has obliterated his business, one that relies primarily on Swedish tourists. He told colleague Linda van Tilburg His protest drives are growing in popularity and now gathering momentum elsewhere in the country as well, with even a huge police escort joining in. You know how you get keyboard warriors if you just got to open any site in this red and everybody's threatening and doing everything. So I'm just sick and tired of that. So the safari vehicles are big vehicles. So I wrote out a sign on it and then I just got in my vehicle and uh, drove the white Travan and Nelspreet. It's about uh, 25 kilometers between the two. So it's a big main busy road. So I just put it on and a whole lot of signs uh, protesting against the government. And then uh, I just drove down. Then I posted it and I said, first protest drive done or awareness drive, I call them, just avoiding the word protest for now in any case. And I drove past the government buildings, posted it, and the next minute everybody's jumping on the bandwagon. They couldn't believe that I could do that. So they were thrilled to feel that they could be empowered because – I hate saying this, but a lot of people are very scared to sort of get up and do something. But people are so desperate now, really desperate. And this is what the government doesn't get. I mean, we've retrenched two of our staff of 20 years. You should have seen their faces when I said, sorry, we don't have money. So that Friday, about 60 vehicles suddenly were all pitched up and we drove down, did a slow drive. And uh, the cops came roaring out and in front of us, and we thought, oh, here we're going now, And because um, I was always in the lead vehicle with my wife. Meanwhile, the cops uh, sort of slowed down and said, where are you going? Huge smiles on their faces, and I said, thanks a million. And they escorted us down the one police car with lights, and we, we very well behaved. We don't 
throw stones or burn tires or anything like that and we let other cars go in front of us and they need to turn off and they can also pass. And then the next Wednesday, so 22nd, we had a huge turnout, over a 100 vehicles, buses, everybody from different parts of the industry and that just exploded. So we, believe it or not, the police had asked me just to inform them. So I did that and we got a huge police escort down and uh, well behaved, went to the MEC in Nels Bradshaw of Tourism and Business Development. Uh, seriously, a lot of political words, hasn't done a single thing about us, and um, we understood this was going to be the case in any case. We had one more uh, last week, Thursday, and then a, quite a big one with over 60 vehicles. And so so Durban had a big one yesterday. Gauteng at the moment is having one or just finishing one. Cape Town also had a big one yesterday. And there's a whole lot of different organizations. There's this big red light thing where people put red lights all over different buildings in South Africa yesterday. I don't have anything to do with those, but, you know, it's growing. And the government needs to wake up. They need to realize we're not interested in their pennies and their trash, small amounts that they throw at us. And we would rather go and work, contribute, because that's what we've been What's happened? We are now beggars instead of contributors. I mean, we, we contribute so much. 8.6% of the economy we contribute to. And that's just us straight. What about all the other people that are connected with this? I mean, really, if you break it down, it's everybody. Bottle stores, restaurants, everybody gets a piece of the pie when tourists come. We can't handle it anymore. We're just getting up and doing something because it's, it just doesn't work anymore for us. And then you've got to remember it's different. You know, if you're a restaurant owner and they open the restaurants, if you're sitting in Durban or Cape Town, you open a restaurant, they're also very dependent, a lot of them, on international um, tourism. But they will survive much more easier than, for example, for example, us, where we are almost uh, 95% dependent on international tourism. I speak for a whole group of us. My wife and I, she's called Ingrid. We're going back to Sweden now because we double citizens. We've got South African and Swedish. So we have to go just to survive and find a job. I'll be prepared to sweep the streets or whatever at the moment. I mean, we run a business, but this government has flattened us totally with their attitude. So only when they get their acting together and open the borders can we actually start bringing people back. My wife and I, she's called Ingrid. So Ingrid and I, you know, we've got it fairly well because... We're very fortunate. We've paid off all our vehicles and we don't have any debts in that sense except living expenses. But other companies have collapsed, um, smaller companies. South Africans are very apathetic in one sense, and um, this is getting people activated and motivated to start realizing they can actually push back and stand up. And, I mean, you won't believe the taxis as they drive past us. They're all shooting and hard and uh, routing for us. So it's getting bigger and um, basically the aim is that they must realize we're not here to play. We're actually very serious and that's why we're starting these things. But, you know, it's a small thing which is going to grow hopefully and they really got to understand they've got to change things. This has been episode 70 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or on the BizNews app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.